0: 2 Peter 3, and um, our text this morning will be verse 8, but I will read, uh, starting at verse 1, to give us the context again. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, That there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that, a thou- that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons are ye to be in all holiness, holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God? wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So far, let us pray. Holy God, we come before you and we thank you for this sobering and yet hope-giving word. Father, I pray that as we reflect on the word this morning, that you would rivet our hearts to eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning, like I said, I want to deal with verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And this morning's message is a little bit um, both exegetical, and it will end with a number of applications out of that uh, exegesis. The reason is, verse 9 is one of the most controversial verses in our theological uh, Understanding And so I want to give that an entire sermon as well. So verse 8 is a, is a little bit of an unorthodox approach maybe to the text, but I still want to exegete it and then do our applications. So three points to draw out of the text. First of all, our vital truth, then eternal truth, and then present trust. And that's where our applications will be. So first of all, vital truth. Uh, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. You got to remember what's going on in Peter's mind here. The primary concern has been answering the scoffers. Remember that said Jesus isn't coming back, we're denying they denied his coming again. They argued simply that all things had continued as they were and that the world had never experienced before a catastrophic change. And therefore there is no return of Christ to be expected. So Live as you will. There's no accountability. Do what you want to do. And Peter says, as we saw last time, that in saying this, they're actually denying the very word of God because God before has brought profound change to this world. The first one would be when he called the earth into existence out of chaos and he brought it forth out of the waters. And then the second time was the flood itself where the earth perished in the flood. And then it says, by that same word of God, it is being reserved unto that final cataclysmic judgment. And so Peter already has dismantled their arguments, but now he's going to positively bear the brunt of showing uh, that Jesus is coming again. And you'll see the shift in verse 8, because... Before this, we get the scoffers, and in verse 8, he shifts gears back to his readers with the affectionate word, beloved. We saw it before at the beginning of this chapter, but he's distancing himself from the scoffers and drawing in the church of God. And let's face it, Christians, we have been waiting for, with the church of all ages, since Jesus went into heaven for the return of our Savior, haven't we? And perhaps... Some of us are starting to buy into the cynicism that has set in in modern Christianity. Like, well, he hasn't come back yet. And we start to almost get more focused on earthly things. It's such a tendency because we we lose sight of heavenly things. We're building our businesses. We're tending to our families. We're raising the kids. We're getting a solid education. We're learning music, playing sports, doing all these things. And we we focus on the here and now. And which of us isn't inclined to do that? I think we all are. So the question before us is. Why is there a delay in the final judgment? The return of Jesus Christ. We've got to look at the text. Notice first of all Peter says. Be not ignorant of this one thing. The word to be ignorant is only used in. Eight times in the entire New Testament in the Greek. And the. It's interesting, Peter brings the same word up in verse 5. For this, they willingly are ignorant of. That means they willingly hide this fact. And that was the fact of God's cataclysmic things before. But he says to us, be not ignorant. Don't hide these things from your face. Make sure you've got these things riveted into your minds. Now, although it's not translated in our version, and many versions don't translate it, there's a, in the Greek a very strong shift because in the, the early verse when it talks about the scoffers, in verse 3, it just uses them ambiguously as the scoffers. But it says in the Greek very emphatically here, but be you not ignorantly of these things. He's really taking the beloved and really almost stirring us up. Don't be ignorant of these facts, dear believers. And so it's very strong. And notice that this is a command. This is something we ought to do. You must work at obedience of not being ignorant of these things. You have to make this intentionally part of your thinking. Actively live according to this thought pattern because we'll naturally drift from these things. We are to think by biblical teaching and not by personal preferences. Notice as well in the text it says, um, be not ignorant of this one thing. Well, why is he putting it that way? It's because, remember, earlier on in the text, he says, I'm reminding of you of these things. I'm stirring you up. I'm waking you up. Reminding you of all kinds of things. But here, to answer the need of the hour, he says, of this one thing. You need to know this. And that is on the idea of Jesus coming again. Remember this one thing. Maybe your faith has been challenged in a particular area this week. Perhaps it's in questions of the return of the Lord. Perhaps it's in the question of counsel. Perhaps in the question of how do I raise my kids. Perhaps it's in the question of how to deal with something at work. In all of these things, we need a wide base, a wide grounding in the word of God so that when the challenges come, we can pull particular truths and apply them to the hour. So always be studying, always be grounding your feet in the word. So That brings me to the second point, eternal truth. Really the core of the text, the reminder that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Now this, as we saw in our call to worship, is an adaptation from Psalm 90 verse 4, where the psalmist Moses, remember Moses way back, says this, For a thousand years in thy sight, are as but yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. A watch was three hours, very brief. Notice that Psalm 90 that we read earlier reflects on one side of the coin. For a thousand years are as but yesterday. That corresponds to Peter's um, a thousand years is as one day. But Peter also speaks of the other side That one day is as a thousand years. He brings up both sides. Notice that a little bit more than Moses here. And why is he doing that? It's because Peter is focusing not on the shortness of human life. Which the psalmist is, Moses. But rather he is focusing on how our ideas of time are inapplicable to God. That's the shift. One scholar put it this way. He said the desire of the psalmist is to contrast the eternity of God with the short span of human life. But what St. Peter, he says, wishes to contrast is the eternity of God with the impatience of human expectations. And that's the difference. Peter is addressing our impatience, our view of God with respect to time that begets all these questions of impatience or doubt or cynicism and everything that creeps into our lives because we are easily impatient, aren't we? If we can hardly wait for temporary things, how much more for eternal things? Perhaps you want that quick fix for your marriage. Perhaps you want your Solve problems at work to be easily solved, and the health pains to be over in a night, or your struggles in your relationships to, to, you know, to put a time on the calendar and it'll be over then, and I don't need to worry about it anymore. And impatience often breeds in the womb irritability and other sin. And we expect other people's sins to be changed overnight, but we want them to be patient with us. And we have two standards it's wrong. But if you up the game to the big struggles of life, the biggest ones, and you think of the painful losses of death, perhaps the sufferings of a bout with devastating cancer, or the devastations of wars and famines, these also can cause us and stir up in us an impatience with God's timing. Why aren't you making all things new yet? What's going on? Oh, let us confess, we are impatient. With God, and it is wrong, and Peter is addressing that. Now back in the text, we have to be careful, because Peter does not say, "A day is 1,000 years, and a thousand years is one day." He doesn't say that. In fact, the Jewish rabbis and many of the early church fathers did take it that way and that's why they thought there's going to be 6,000 years corresponding to the six days of creation, 6,000 years and then Jesus is coming back. And then we get the 1,000 years but then the problem is the thousand, it will be a 1,000 years of judgment which wouldn't make sense with the text. They also thought that when God says to Adam in the day you eat of this fruit ye shall die and then Adam didn't die the next day, or that day. He lived another 900-something years. They said, well, that explains it, because one day is 1,000 years, so he lived about 1,000. And so they speculated as to what this might mean. But that's not what Peter says. Because Peter says it is as one day, and, a th- and one day as 1,000 years. It's a comparison. It's a point of relationship and that is why Peter's focus in this text, notice again in the text it says, is with the Lord. Our focus here needs to be God himself. Not our inadequate, narrow views of time, but on God's relationship to time itself. And we hardly ever pause to think about that, do we? And so these scoffers that proudly accuse Jesus of breaking his promise, of coming again, are completely ignorant of how God relates to time itself. And therefore, we must think on these things and be not ignorant of these things. And that is where I will stop the exegesis and now draw out the implications of God's relationship with time, which leads me to the final point, the present trust the first sub-point under that is God's relationship to time. Because time is something that is by nature changing, isn't it? And the Bible tells us that God is unchanging. We know that in theology as he is immutable. It's maybe something you learn in Sunday school, the immutability of God. He's not mutating. God says in Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Theologians will speak of a term of God with respect to who he is, and they will say God is a se, which is a Latin, two terms, which means from self. We speak of God's aseity, and that means that God has life in himself. Unlike us, God is not in any way dependent on someone else to live. It also means that God then is not influenced by time. We know that the passing of time means change for us, don't we? As time passes, the things around us and the things within us affect us. We age, we grow, and then we stop growing and we start to shrivel. We learn, we adjust, we solve. With the passing of time, we like someone more or we like someone less and we're always changing as time presents new challenges, new situations. But the passing of minutes and seconds do not affect God. Time does not make God older, love more or less. He does not increase or decrease. God never lacked anything, nor is he in need of anything Even creation itself did not change God. The Puritan Stephen Charnock says this. God never began in time to understand something. Or would he be able to do anything he couldn't do before. Because he always understood and he always willed those things which he determined from eternity to produce in time. God then does not measure time like you and I measure time. He does not say, well, that's long or that's short. That's how we relate to time, don't we? Not God. With God, there is no difference between years and seconds. For him, nothing will take too long or nothing will be too short or happening too fast. You might have said this past week, boy, where has the time gone? God never says that. Now, we've got to be careful. That doesn't mean that time does not exist. It does. Time is part of the created order. The genesis of time was in Genesis 1, in the beginning. Have you ever mumbled or grumbled under your breath to God? Have you ever shaken your fists? Maybe it was in private at the heavens or raised your hands. What are you doing it is then that you are actually challenging the sovereign of time, God himself, as to how he unfolds time itself, as he is unfolding history and the changing of hours and years and days and ages. In effect, when we raise our hands to the heavens or when we cry out and say, what are you doing? We are criticizing God for what seems to us to be mismanagement of time. And when we are doing this, we are affronting God's honor. We are provoking the Holy One. We are trespassing into God's arena, the domain that only belongs to the Creator. How arrogant, isn't it, for us to squeeze God into our molds? Doesn't this show us the audacity of sin? Now, this is nothing new. And um, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, this is where, if you do that, and if this comes in our minds, we need to repent. But we also need to go out at midnight, outside, in the dark, and do what God says in Isaiah. Because God says this, To whom will ye then liken me? Or shall I be your equal? saith the Holy One. Then he says this, Lift up your eyes on high, go out at night, and behold who hath created these things and that bringeth out their host by number. He's calling us to look at the stars, to look at the heavens. He brings them out by number. He calleth them, he says, all by names, by the greatness of his might. For that he is strong in power, not one of them faileth. The stars aren't just hanging up there suspended in nothing. God is holding them, numbering them, ordering them, calling them. To remember God is so much bigger and the heavens are big. That's nothing compared to our almighty God. Which brings me to the second sub-point which is God's relationship to creation. Because God is beyond limit which means you, you cannot measure God in quantity as though there can be less or more of God. Nor is he to be understood as the greatest collection of something. That's how a lot of people, well he's the most of this or he's, The greatest of this. That's not how we look at God. The terms we need to learn here are three. The first term is transcendence. Which speaks of God being beyond or above all of creation. He steps above everything created. The other term we need to learn and listen well is immanence. And the reason, I'll say listen well, I'll explain in a second. But imminence, so if transcendence is God's beyondness, imminence refers to God's being present in creation, relating to creation. And though he's at the whole time, as he's relating to us, he's totally unaffected by it in the sense that he is changed by it, he does interact in time and space. Now this is most particularly seen in covenant, where if you think of what a marriage relationship is, it's a covenant between a man and a woman. Well, in covenant, God condescends. He comes down and he relates to people that he has called to himself. He comes near to sinners to form an intimate relationship. He is being imminent with those people. This is most clearly seen, this doctrine of imminence, in the coming of Jesus Christ. Because remember what the angel told Joseph. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. There's your doctrine of imminence. Of the transcendent God. Relationship and yet beyond all things. But the reason I said listen carefully to the word imminence. Is because there's another word imminent. What's the difference? Immanence or imminent. And they're very important to distinguish. Immanence with an A is how God relates what I was just describing. Imminence with an I means something that could happen at any moment. We could say, well, an election is imminent. Or the earthquake in California is imminent. Or that snow drift is about to fall and there will be an imminent avalanche. That's with the I. But imminence is not the same as immanence. And so we've got to distinguish the two. And the reason you're like, you think, well, what's going on here? Why is he bringing this difficult stuff up? We're not doing a school lesson here. (laughs) The reason is the whole point of this text is about the imminent return of Christ, the looming return. Near return of Christ and at the same time to answer the question of where is the promise of his coming because coming, I thought it was imminent soon looming over us he goes to God's transcendence to explain who he is and to God's imminence his relationship because what does he say but beloved beloved they're beloved of God He knows them. And so the transcendent God beyond time has related to you, believer. And his coming then is imminent. And it's really quite amazing when you put those things together. So be humble in all three of those categories. What does this mean? It means be aware that we're so easily consumed with the here and now. We all do that. Perhaps our struggles with depression are only because we think in the terms of the things we can see in front of us. Perhaps our greed and our pride is motivated by the short-sighted promise of the perishable. Maybe in your decisions this past week, you took no time to think about the transcendent God who imminently relates to us and whose coming is imminent. I think that when the eternity of God, as Peter calls us to think on, dwarfs our small, puny minds, suddenly our piddly kingdoms of self are unmasked for what they are, as really, really foolish pursuits. But this also encourages us to then labor for the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. And it also means that as we labor in the kingdom, remember this, we will not change God's timing in our laboring. God will have his son return in his time, in his hour. So faithfully labor, but do not impatiently labor. The other point, sub-point, would be God's constancy. How many times haven't our plans, even this past week, been affected by something that came to pass? You plan a holiday. Well, something came up and you couldn't go anymore. You said you'd be there and you accidentally double booked the time. Aren't our purposes then all bound by time? Our culture will say terms like, well, good luck with that. you use that term? Maybe we do. We've got to be careful. What do we mean when we say that? Scientists will say things like, they seem intelligent when they say these things. Well, time and chance has brought us here. But what does time actually do? Time isn't an entity that actually can do anything. And isn't chance merely the mathematical probability of something happening like a dice roll that is actually turning and, and rolling according to the laws of energy momentum and resistance and so on chance isn't a thing either so by both time and chance do nothing they're just ways we describe things and that's why instead of saying good luck and instead of saying appropriating to time and chance our existence and our being we should actually do what christians of yesteryear used to do a lot more they spoke of providence the providence of god which is his governance over all things by which he directs in his wisdom and love and cares for all things in the universe. The Bible teaches us that the dice don't just land a certain way when you roll them. The Bible says this in Proverbs sixteen thirty three: the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Have you considered the providence of God in your life? Everything that transpired in your life, in my life, has conflated together to bring us here today. Everything with pinpoint precision God has ordained to come to pass so that we could be here this morning. That is the providence of God. He is sovereign over time and space. And in all those changing affairs, while providence is running its course, God at the whole time is constant. He's always upholding all things by His Almighty power. Now, this means that God's rule can never be effectively challenged. His wisdom then is never going to run into an unforeseen hitch that he didn't know and didn't sovereignly ordain. It'll never happen. The fountain of life is never depleted. It is always flowing, always rich, always attractive. He always satisfies. But here's even more staggering news about this sovereign, immutable God. Because our God is eternal... We were made and we were made to fellowship with him. We see that in the garden, the eternal God stooping down and fellowshipping, covenanting with Adam and Eve and restoring that in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means we were made for eternity because we were made to relate to the eternal God. And that is why it says in Ezekiel 37, 26, God says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be to me an everlasting covenant. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary, that's his dwelling, in the midst of them forevermore. You see, the relationship brings us into an eternal Relationship in Jesus Christ. Stephen Charnock again said this simply, man is made for an eternal state. And that makes sense. When we sing the songs of yesteryear, when we think of great great grandparents that have gone, when we look at Napoleons and Hitlers and wicked men of the past who have gone we realize there has to be an eternal accountability something that eternally relates to what they've done and then what a cheap what a cheap exchange then it is to fix our hearts on the things of this world all the money all the popularity all the stuff The bodily desires and the status we can get on this earth is but a fading trophy that will end up in the trash heap and be shriveled and decay and will be gone with the wind. John writes this in 1 John 2.17. He says, and the world passeth away. And then he says this, and the lusts thereof. All the things you desired on this earth is gone, gone. Don't hang on to it. But oh, the constancy of our Christ is the saint's greatest delight, isn't it? When the love of earthly relationships pass, how precious is then the timeless love of our Jesus Christ. When the shine of our truck fades. When that new dress we just bought wrinkles and shrivels. When the muscles on our bodies Fall away and fade when time pulls its wrinkles over our brows. How perfectly beautiful and how constant is the attraction of Jesus Christ to the believer. Time actually makes Christ more and more attractive to the believer. Why? Well, we'll get to that. It's because someone is changing and it's not God, it's because we are changing. The change is only in us. In fact, the Bible says it this way, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, speaking to believers, behold, as with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. His glorious constancy means that what lies ahead for the believer is described as moving from glory to glory. This ever-increasing approaching to the eternal, everlastingly immutable God. That is attractive. And I wouldn't exchange it for anything. Believer in Jesus Christ, vistas of glory are in front of us. The never fading The always constant, the ever-giving, eternally satisfying love of God is changing us, drawing us closer to the eternal one. Which brings me to my last sub-point. God's purposes then are fixed. Because we need to think about that. Because perhaps, I think we all do, have all sorts of hopes... And plans for this life, don't we? the career, the vacation, the children, the grandchildren, the acreage. we all have these things in front of us. We all do. And we know that time is short, and we can't control our future. And some people, in fact, talk about a bucket list before they kick the bucket, they say they want to have checked off all these boxes. Well, why do they think that way? Because they know time here is so short. Our plans are fragile. They're uncertain. I hope I can get to this. Not so with God. Because neither time nor ability are a hindrance to the purposes of God. For the Lord of time, there will never be this. Oh, what if I had done it that way? He will never say, I wish I went this way, because then that would have happened that way. No, instead our God says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He orchestrates from the beginning, in the beginning, to behold, I will make all things new. He holds it all perfectly together. And so know this, the challenge of the return of Christ is as certain, or the answer to that, is as certain as the creation of the world. Did we get created? Are we here? Yes. And we can be that certain that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And this means none can escape his final judgment. We will all have our day in his divine courtroom. Perhaps you've bowed the knee, or you are bowing the knee to the gods of this world money, sex, power, greed, prestige. Perhaps you are enslaved to the paralyzing idols of the fear of man or the pride of life. There's a text that talks about how God relates to the gods of this world. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 and 40. God says this: "See now that I, even I am He, there is no God with me. I kill and make alive." I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. And then in these stark words of an oath, and we saw that this morning in the LBC, God in using human language says this, For I lift up my hands to the heaven and say, I live forevermore. God is swearing by himself in his very existence. And that eternal existence is enough to silence the gods, to shatter the deception, to destroy the idolatry. His eternality is his claim to being the only God. And the difference then between the scoffers who ignore God willingly. And the beloved who obeyed the command to willingly be mindful of these things and meditate on these things is this. It's our response. Worship. Who do we worship? Who do you worship? Who captivates your heart ultimately? The creature or the creator? The changing, time bound word of man, or the eternal, unchanging word of God? No created crutch can deliver you on Judgment Day. God has no equals. Nothing you or I can offer will save you on Judgment Day because man is fickle, this world is passing, death is certain, judgment is imminent. Have you considered your brief stay on this earth? Perhaps today you will breathe your last. And you will stand before the sovereign. Now perhaps you're thinking. as you think about the eternality of God and the brevity of life? Perhaps you're thinking this. But I've done so many bad things. Certainly God cannot forgive me being so miserable. Even believers... Think this, but even my life as a Christian is so dismal, so clouded with doubt, depression, failure, and pride, and we all stumble and fall. The Bible tells us that. So, then, how shall you live? What is the way to respond to this imminent judgment of the eternal God? I love just thinking on this because it to answer that question is where we take the eternality of God and his actions within the sphere of time, and we see them meet so beautifully, eternality and time. Listen to this. Because God's counsel is from eternity, it means this. God was never moved into action by something that happened in time. The sinner's helpless state, you're in my helpless state, and the prevalence of evil in this world did not finally press God into sending his son into the world. That's how many people think. Oh, finally we it's that bad that God decided he would do something. It's not biblical. The eternal God does not need to be aroused into action, nor will he be silenced into inaction, inactivity. Rather, the eternal God, determined before time, from all eternity... To send his son. The Bible says. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before anything ever unrolled on the script. God had already determined to send his son. It's an eternal determination. And therefore. Because it scopes outside of time. Into the eternal places of God almighty. Therefore. Therefore. We can trust him. And know his word is unchangeable. It is permanently secure and absolutely worthy of our full and total allegiance. Because if you operate in the world, you're operating on the shifting sands. But if you operate in trust in God's word, you are standing on a rock. The psalmist says, oh Lord, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I so I get back to my simple question. How should I respond? How should I respond? Simply. Abandon all expectations on this side. Of yourself. Of your works. Abandon your idols. And simply trust God. To us, we are the helpless, broken Rotten to the core sinners who break God's law daily. And God, the eternal God, says this. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is his secure promise. If you call upon him, if you call upon him, his spirit, who is busy in the world, effecting the world unites you to the unchangeable righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because God does not change, time will not erode the righteousness of Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. One author put it this way, salvation is the drama of the unchanging election of the Father. Secured in the unchanging righteousness and atonement of the Son and forever applied in the unchanging seal of the Spirit. You see, all of salvation comes from the eternal God to sinners. And He just calls us to trust Him, to rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that means For the believer, for that miserable saint who has pled the wounds of Jesus Christ. It means patience in struggle. It gives hope in the midst of uncertainty. It provides sure truth in the midst of lies. It means being embraced by eternal love in the midst of a world of fickle love. It is purpose and meaning in a life shrouded by aimlessness. It is the assurance of salvation precisely because our Savior is God. It is for the believer, the glory of the unchanging God, changing sinners to enjoy His glory. Yes, God is majestically sovereign over every second. And for us, That means patient, humble, confident, hope in Him. Will you turn to Him? Will you trust Him? Will you lay down the broken crutches, the broken cisterns that can hold no water and go to the fountain of ever-giving, always-sufficient, unchanging life? Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you. What an amazing thing that the creature who has so exchanged the creator for created stuff can be saved by your spirit, drawn into the arms of everlasting love. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for its sure promise, its hope, and we thank you that our Lord is coming again. oh Lord, hasten that day. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.